Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. Okay, so um, I'd like to begin the event officially now by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're all meeting virtually today. Um, so for me and Yash, that's the, the land of the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Um, so we'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, and we invite you to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that you're situated on this evening as well. And also extend this respect to any First Nations people who are joining us um, or listening in as well to the podcast. We'd also like to um, just acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that there's a deep interconnection between the oppressive and carceral institutions and policies that are enacting violence on both First Nations people as the first to arrive on this land and refugees, the most recent arrivals. Um, we'd also like to acknowledge a perverse hypocrisy in the gatekeeping of stolen lands by the Australian government. So the hypocrisy in a government that has its roots in the illegal settlers who arrived on this continent by boat who made a claim to the land which was contrary to the international law existing at the time, now turning around and implementing policies to punish and exclude people who are arriving by boat in particular um, to seek asylum, which in contrast to the settlers, they actually have a right to do under international law. So keeping these things in mind as we're moving forward today, firstly, just want to introduce everyone to the Progressive Law Network, if you're not familiar with the club. So as a club, we're basically a group of law students um, and other students with an interest in social and environmental justice in the law and how we can promote the use of the law to achieve progressive change in society. Um, we also like to focus on promoting more commercial careers and ways that students can um, yeah, use the law without heading down that more traditional commercial path. The law school tends to sort of um, have us on this trajectory down. So I'll now pass it over to Lily to kick off this event. So without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce our wonderful speakers. So first up, we have Maria O'Sullivan. Maria is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at Monash University and the Deputy Director of the Kastan Centre for Human Rights Law. Maria is the author of a number of international and national publications on the subject of human rights, public law and technology. Her recent publications include papers on the public law implications of technology and automated decision making and commentary on the human rights implications of digital vaccine passports and related technologies. Maria is a regular media commentator on human rights and technology and has been published in The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and The Conversation. Welcome, Maria. Secondly, we have Esther Pearson. So Esther is currently an associate solicitor at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, the ASRC, where she has worked for nearly three years as an associate in the Supreme Court of Nauru and a refugee status determination officer. Welcome, Esther. Thirdly, we have um, Asma Mohamed-Jahim. Asma works passionately to inspire and support students from refugee and diverse cultural backgrounds to empower them and to reach their full potential at Monash University. She's currently with the International Student Engagement Team and has three years of professional experience as a skilled program officer and program coordinator at Monash Uni. Recently, Asma joined Host International as an accredited career coach to support Afghani refugees in Melbourne through their resettlement period. Asma has recently completed a Bachelor of Science majoring in physiology and minoring in biochemistry. And as a medical clerk, she is driven to provide holistic patient-centered care in the emergency departments at Monash Health Hospital. Welcome, Asma, and welcome to all of our speakers. We're really grateful to have you all with us tonight. Thank you so much, guys. Um, pass it over to you, Yash, now for our first question tonight. Okay, thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm just going to reiterate what um, the Liam Ben just said. So I'll start off with our first question. So much of the political discourse on refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia is marred by misunderstanding, secrecy and fear. Um, which has been far too often weaponized as an election strategy in the past two decades. There's no denying that refugee law is very complex and it seems like a lack of awareness about 
refugee law, the right to seek asylum, other realities of the immigration system, and those issues contribute to the continued public acceptance of policies that have widely been condemned, both in Australia and internationally. What is one aspect, angle or fact regarding refugee law in Australia that you wish was more commonly understood? In your opinion, if they should, what role do you think universities and student groups such as ourselves, like the PLN, play in achieving this understanding? Um, I might go first, I guess, then. I'll, I'll probably, I guess, this slight obsession with boats. So, I mean, that goes back a, a long way um, and, you know, back to Tampa. Uh, but I think the public probably perceive boat arrivals as illegal um, and, in fact, that word is used or unauthorised is used in the Migration Act. But if you look at the statistics, a lot of so-called boat arrivals are from countries where um, there is a legitimate, and that, again, is a, pro a problematic term, but if we're looking at how the public describe these issues, um, I would say a lot of those boat arrivals are legitimate. That is, they've got a prima facie claim. So um, those from Afghanistan, historically Iran and Iraq as well. So if we look over the past 20 years and we look at the recognition rates, it's the boat arrivals that have been, you know, the subject of, say, 70 to 90% recognition rates. So of those people who did apply for asylum, 70, 80 and 90% of those um, received refugee status. And as we know, the refugee processing system in Australia is pretty robust. If you get refugee status, you've really got a strong case. So that's the, the main issue I would like the general public to understand. And in terms of academics and students, um, writing to your local member, um, if you can write blogs um, or opinion pieces telling your family and friends. But I guess, you know, officially, um, you're writing to your local member, writing petitions and so forth, you know, having a voice on social media, that would be a great way to, to sort of um, unpack some of these myths. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Maria. And uh, Asma, would you like to jump in or Esther? Yes, Maria, that was actually a great point that I would like to highlight. But before I um, continue, I just want to take this moment and I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation and the traditional owner of the land that I am joining you all. Uh, and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. As a refugee who has been rescued and welcome on this land, um, I'm grateful to the opportunities that we do live in this country. But I would like to acknowledge um, their uh, cultures and then also the rich backgrounds that they have on this land too. Um, great points on the aspects and then also what I really would love to see especially during this period, as you mentioned, is to highlight and commonly understand the difference between a refugee and a migrant too. As you said and highlighted, it, uh, refugees comes and flee and leave their country because of a serious harm. And there is a certain threat for them. From a country that I came from, it was persecutions and then also uh, lack of opportunities for women's directly. There was a reason behind of it where migrants who are entering countries from one place for another place, they comes from different reasons, including job opportunities or study skills. Um, unfortunately, that understanding that two different terminology has been blended uh, during these two decades when it comes to the chef and TPV members of our community. Uh, I say a member of the community because we have been labelled on two different categories for almost two decades. And then we have been on those labels for a long time. So we have lost our identity as a specific country member that we entered uh, in Australia. We are based on a visa category at this stage. It's hard to say that, but that's the reality that we are facing, unfortunately. And um, just wanted to highlight our hard work and efforts as a students. These changes, especially in regulation of the visa, didn't happen systematically by the government only. There was a vocal activities going on. Students were side by side with us uh, to advocate for us. From going to the universities, the schools or parliaments, 
um, starting from increasing the number of scholarships because we categorize as an international students. We are, when we are entering tertiary educations, we will highlight it later. But it's just that by advocating, fighting against the stigma that uh, we do have on our labels, because refugees considered as a burden on the community. And it's just that we as a community were fighting against that stigma. And then a lots of the students have been involved doing that. So it's great to see that. Esther, I'm so sorry I took a long time to mention <laughs> those things, but Maria <laughs> highlighted those great points and it's very important to just differentiate on those two terminologies that unfortunately we have lost that. Mm. No, I think um, both of those answers were really eloquently expressed and I think fundamentally I agree the one thing I wish people knew and this is relates very much back to what Maria was saying that um, it's not illegal to seek asylum it's actually in fact very much legal and grounded in the Refugees Convention which is what Australia has ratified so under international law we've actually made this promise to accept people who come to our doorstep and ask for protection if they meet that refugee definition. Um, so all the terminology which has been touched on already in terms of boat, boat arrivals and illegal immigrants um, is all really misplaced. I guess beyond that, I think there's maybe some misconceptions about what the process is like when people seeking asylum arrive in Australia. Uh, and that maybe they are presented with a visa fairly easily and have things presented on a silver platter, so, so to speak, which is very much not the case. It's an extremely arduous and taxing and very long process. And in fact, it's very common for people 10 years after they arrive to still be moving through the system um, and what that does to the well-being of those people is extremely detrimental. So more understanding around that. I, I wish um, there was that as well. And I think um, the place for student advocacy, it's really important. Um, it's really you guys who are shape, shaping the views of people who are going to be coming into these positions of power really soon. So that's so important and I think it's really just um, challenging those attitudes where you see them day to day, um, you know, the, the attitudes that Asma has spoken about and the presumptions about um, people seeking asylum and having some of those tough conversations even if it's with family members or friends um, and just challenging those views with the facts. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for those contributions, everyone. They were really great. Um, touched on some of the really yeah, core points that I think are miscommunicated in Australia, just in the public discourse, just things that people aren't, aren't really understanding, um, which isn't necessarily the fault of the public. It's something that mm. has a political process of misconceptions sort of deliberately being put into the public um, to basically gain political points. Um, so it's really important that we're yeah, uh, establishing these clear facts that you guys have all talked about. So touching on something that, Asma, you mentioned that the TPV, Temporary Protection Visa, and CHEV, the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa um, distinction there. I'd like to yeah, direct a question maybe to Maria, you um, on this point. So since 2013, refugees who arrived in Australia without a valid visa um, who are found to be owed protection have only been granted either these TPV or SHEV visas, which last for only three or five years. And in February this year, as Asma alluded to, the federal government announced the conversion of these visas to permanent visas, um, which was obviously a very positive step forward for those um, roughly 19,000 people in the Australian community to now have a path to permanency. But in terms of the, the law behind these, these temporary visas, what is the problem um, with the temporary protection visas from a human rights perspective? And does this policy change that's been announced fix the problem? Or does the potential for future use of temporary protection 
remain within the Australian legal system. Yeah, I might answer the last part first in terms of, you know, does the policy fix the problem? This policy change it does to a certain well it does for that 19,000 but my understanding is future applicants are not going to benefit from that so it's an, like a past um looking at the past and it, it is good and and I have to say that probably represents gosh 15 years of work by advocates and so forth so um so it is a good policy change but it doesn't affect future applicants now if I just want to go back to one thing and I think it's an important thing to understand when you're working in this area is that you can have legal um arguments and I'm going to get to those in a moment but there's a question of law and a question of strategy and I think um it's really important to use case studies. And even though the Bila Wheeler family, you know, the family that were in Queensland, they weren't really on, they were, really, they were on bridging visas, I think, for some time and then and then detention. But using a case study like that, a family that can play well to media, I think that has to be part of the package to change policy as well or to, to highlight unfairness and talk about the rule of law. But just going back to the law, there are various things we can use. We can talk about Article 31 of the Refugee Convention, which says you shouldn't penalise people. And the way that TPV is penalised is that um, they only apply to so-called boat arrivals, unauthorised arrivals, to, to not to the people who are coming on a plane. So the problem is myself and others did raise this at various times both in the media and in parliamentary submissions. Um, so for those who don't know, parliamentary submissions are a really important way to argue the Refugee Convention on Human Rights and anyone can make a submission and the Castan Centre did on a number of occasions about these TPVs. And look, to be honest, a lot of my parliamentarians say, oh, yeah, that's very interesting, but the Migration Act says like X and Y. So often when you talk about international law to politicians, um, you get the pushback that, okay, yes, but the Migration Act is the most important piece of legislation because that's passed by Parliament. But if we're looking at international um, arguments, the yeah, Article 31, so talking about the fact that these people were penalised, um, there's some issues about the right to family life because people on TPVs couldn't get family reunification. That's really important for refugees. And then the only thing I'd also like to say about TPVs is that sometimes temporary protection is important. So looking more recently at the Ukrainian situation, the EU recently instigated their temporary protection directive that this is the first time in 20 years that they've done that. We also have a safe haven visa system. So that's where as a, um, I guess, as a one-off, you can say, well, we will take X number of Ukrainian refugees as a, as a once-off. But again, um, the question is then when do they get permanent protection if that situation doesn't improve? Great. Thank you so much for covering all those points, Maria. Also, just to clarify that, because I know it can be very confusing, the safe haven visa Maria talked about at the end there is different to the safe haven enterprise visa. Um, yes. as a temporary protection visa. So there's yeah. conflicting terminology in the um, resettlement visas for people who are offshore and the visas for people who come to Australia, land on Australian territory. But yeah, great. I'd love to open that up to either of uh, Esther or Asma if you have anything to add to that question before we move on. Yeah, no, I think all the points that have been made so far have been um, very much on point in terms of the issues posed by temporary protection schemes. And I guess the way that system was working in practice was that people could reapply every three years, five years to renew their temporary visa, which is also um, for those experiencing that in practice, a really stressful system to every three years have to restart this whole process again and reliving past traumas it's the impact of all of that on mental health is really immense so it's really pleasing to hear that people won't be forced to go through that really difficult process so frequently especially when it takes so long if you've got 10 years to get your visa and then you only have it for three years and you just restart the process it's really was an inhumane way of running the system. 
Yeah, exactly. As well, would you like to jump in there as well? Yes. Um, it's just that um, as as that great point because as a lived-in experience, we were living over and over that points we were not being left out of the trauma that we have been through like even though doing day-to-day tasks from the enrollment as a student I had to retell my story individually to indicate that I am not a domestic student and I'm not an international student I'm in between yes based on the finance aspect I am charged as an international student to enter their tertiary educations, but I can apply for these scholarships. That was the easy aspect that a student could go to the center link, apply, and then additionally re-enroll at the tertiary educations. Unfortunately, those who are living on Chev and TPV didn't have the privilege to go through that simple process. Going to the applying for jobs, for example, uh, when they were applying for jobs, unfortunately, they were limited because this chef and TPV still considers as an international factors and they were not able to access permanent or also uh, full-time job positions in different areas too. Um, so that was one of the struggles that we have been through, but it was an emotional moment to receive that news on a Tuesday night at 11 p.m. Um, we cried as a family members because that was the time that we could say that, yes, after almost 10 to 13 years, we can call Australia home. Um, but the process itself, it's tricky, it's unclear. And it looks like a patch on the issues of uh, immigrations and then also supporting refugees. We are facing different wars at this area, Ukrainian wars, and then also the struggle of Afghans that are happening at this times and the Taliban regimes. What will happen to the family reunion? How long does it take? So given that these issues is time pressured, we are not sure. So how this uh, solution is actually a resolution for our issue at this stage. If I could just add one more quick thing, just, you know, and when we're talking about strategy, so I've, I've um, just explained, you know, the Refugee Convention, by the way, doesn't actually say you have a right to permanent residence. So when you're trying to affect change, you're before a parliamentary committee or speaking to the media, sometimes conceptualising refugees as an economic benefit can be really powerful. So whenever I teach refugee law, I obviously say the Refugee Convention is really important, Migration Act, Human Rights Law, but sometimes you have to think of non-law arguments in order to get your message across to those who don't want to believe your message. And one of those um, things is to emphasise that TPVs are really preventing, as Asma has, has so eloquently explained, it was really a deterrent um, or a problem for people economically contributing to Australia. So that's something, I guess, in your arsenal as a refugee advocate to be aware of the non-law arguments. Great. Thank you all so much for those insights. Um, Yeah, really good to hear about some of those more practical obstacles beyond just the fact of sort of the visa status and, and the refugee status itself, the practical obstacles that come with these policies in terms of just people getting on with their lives, reconnecting with family, um, being able to work and study and that sort of thing, clearly been a very difficult and terrible um, process um, for people on temporary protection visas. So yes, there's still some unanswered questions about about what what this um, solution really resolves and what things will look like in the future. But um, yeah, as as Marie's been saying, there's ways to, to advocate for this to be a more positive change. I think as Maria was sort of mentioning before about these kind of policies being mimicked in the UK, we just had a question on um, for Esther, how would you characterise the impact of offshore detention or processing as a tool of immigration policy? Um, We've seen the UK trying to adopt similar measures under the Prime Ministership of Rishi Sunak, um, and that's through offshore processing in Rwanda and sort of the Stop the Boats campaign. And that's also with other European states as well, looking to externalise their asylum policy. 
What lessons do you think the UK should learn from Australia's policy of offshore processing? Hmm. Yeah, thanks for the really thought-provoking question there, and I'll try not talk for too long about it because it is something that is one of my great interests. But yes, offshore processing. So when you um, think about that as a concept and what the objective or the, the purpose of offshore processing really is, is essentially one of deterrence. So what policy and lawmakers are trying to do by introducing that system is really to deter people from exercising their right to seek asylum in a particular country. So in the Australian context, it was framed as trying to stop the boats and reduce or stop deaths at sea. But the way in which they do that is putting in place these really tough, inhumane policies, which are intended for people who are considering seeking asylum to see that maybe their option of going to a, a country like Australia, that the consequence of that is going to be even harsher than if they stay where they are. So the impacts of that policy, it's obviously really dark and dangerous. And when you look at the efficacy of it really in terms of boat arrivals to Australia shortly after the, the system was put in place, it actually, at least for an initial period of maybe one to two years, wasn't terribly effective. There were still boats coming to Australia and still a really large number of um, boat arrivals. So in terms of achieving the, that objective, it didn't actually look terribly effective. And years down the track, the numbers did reduce, but whether that was a result of the offshore processing or the turning back of the boats actually in practice at sea, it's difficult to say. So, and of course, there's the fact that it's hugely expensive. I think it costs something around $500,000 per detainee offshore to keep them there each year. So it's a huge, huge amount of money. Uh, and costs, you know, billions of dollars. So whether it's worth the cost, you know, it's questionable at best whether that's the case. Um, in terms of lessons, there's really so many, I think, that can be drawn from the Australian context. Legally and politically, I think the experience in the Pacific has shown that it can get really messy and complicated because these third countries where other countries are seeking to outsource their refugee status determination process to are sovereign countries in their own right. So they come with their own legal systems already in place. So that creates all sorts of competition and sort of conflict between you've got different legal systems trying to work alongside and that can get really messy and lead to all sorts of unforeseen consequences as well I suppose. Um, there was in the Australian um, context the Manus Island uh, Regional Processing Centre was declared unconstitutional by the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court in 2016 because the constitution of PNG protects the um, right to freedom of movement. So they found that was violating the constitution and it was declared unconstitutional, which was something that I think probably hadn't been uh, foreseen so much by the Australian government how the laws in these particular countries can really have the impact of shaping the offshore processing systems that are eventually put in place. And that's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing as such. It's just that all of these different considerations need to be borne in mind when looking at setting up one of these systems. And that something else which makes it really complicated too is the country who is seeking to outsource their systems can still ultimately have a duty of care towards the people who are being sent to these um, third countries. So the Australian government has been found to still owe a duty of care to asylum seekers on, on Nauru and on Manus Island. 
um, which means that if they suffer particular harm and they want to seek to make the Australian government liable, it's possible for that to happen. And that has been found by the um, federal court here in Australia in the context of medical evacuations for people who are offshore and have really dire immediate medical needs. The federal court has found that the minister owes the duty of care to those people to bring them to where they can have the health care that they need. So it's not simply the case as well that, um, you know, the UK, for example, could say, okay, we're going to set up this system with Rwanda and then once um, these people are taken there, we can wash our hands. That's not the way that it could potentially pan out. And so I think, yeah, that's something else to be considered. Uh, of course, there needs to be thought put into, okay, how um, does this apply to families? Does this apply to children as well? And if so, what is the impact going to be on them in terms of their well-being and their human rights? How do we safeguard those? As well as having... Um, a really important um, immediate plan for resettlement of the, the people who are found to be owed refugee protection, then what happens from there? How do we find um, durable solutions for those people and resettlement opportunities? I think in Australia that has been a really big problem for people who have been found to owe protection in Nauru or on PNG then what happens from there? Where do they go? Where can they find a place that's going to be their long-term home? Yeah. I'll stop there because <laughs> so much I could say on it. But, yes, thank you for the, for the really interesting question there. And I hope that was helpful. Yeah, thank you. As you say, yes, so many, so many different issues with offshore processing that are drawn to light from the Australian experience. So it is very concerning seeing other countries wanting to follow suit. But yeah, hopefully some of those arguments do ring through. You said there's the human cost and the financial cost as well. It's just ridiculous. Pretty sure it's been said in Senate estimates that about a 30th of the cost of what it is per person um, to detain someone or process someone offshore, it is to have them onshore on a bridging visa. Seems like a lot of un unnecessary harm to people and unnecessary um, financial waste as well. Great. So thank you for those insights. So I'd love to direct a question to you now, um, Asma, about something that you touched on before, um, talking more about the practical implications of refugee law and different visa statuses. So we've heard about you know, the political re rhetoric of refugee policy and some of the complexities in the law, but a lot of this often overshadows yeah, the human consequences um, and the ways that real people are affected by the lawmakers' decisions. So what are some of the practical implications or barriers that are created by these policies um, that you'd like to speak to? And what is something that you wish lawmakers took into account when they're crafting these policies? That's very interesting questions because, um, unfortunately, throughout this process, um, we can see that and we can say that openly people and individual who have been a person of a lived-in experience have lost their shine let's put it that way have lost um, their hopes to resettle and that process of transition it's lengthened and become a longer process when we are talking about the barriers and implications it took us nearly the 20,000 refugees, a pandemic, a loss of a country, two wars and elections to see the changes in our visa status. And those incidents are very important because it shows us clearly what it is like to be in asylum during that period. Let's focus on pandemics. During pandemics, um, and Unfortunately, Chef and TPV visas clearly did not have access to any government supports during that period, despite being the first ones who have lost their jobs as a casual members in our society. That was the clear implications of those regulations. The second point was that 
those who were in Australia who have lost our country during that period, who were mourning for that period, um, unfortunately, did not receive the same level of, let's put it as a respect, during that period too. And then also, we still have got family members in our community who were not able to be a reunion for their families member for this period of time, and they've lost those family members during the recent attacks. Um, that's clear implication of these visa categories on individuals. And then additionally, our story was a political aspect when it comes to elections too. It wasn't about humanity and it wasn't about the process itself. Uh, that is my personal beliefs and my personal aspects when it comes to changes of this shift in TPE that happened during these two decades. And one of the clear barriers that we have seen as a student was that there was a limited access to education and employment, as we discussed at the beginning, due to the language barriers, a lack of recognitions of our qualification during that period, and then also the discrimination that came from that period too. But we clearly saw that during that period that the Ukrainian and Afghans refugees that arrived recently in 2021, there was a specific support services that were available for them uh, during that gaps for them to get their permanent residency to support them with their qualifications. Um, unfortunately, providing the same support will lo lose its meaning for those who have been in Australia for 10 years because that gap will disqualify them from their um, professions in general. So if they were engineers back home, uh, if they want to apply for the same qualification now, it's not possible because that 10 years gap has implemented on their professional careers. So that's that's the main barriers and implications that we can discuss too. However, I would like to take this moment and say that it shows the resilience of the lived-in experience and um, asylums who are in our community too. Despite going through those many struggles, they were able to complete their studies. Let's put it that way, being first in the family and completing your bachelor's, going through those step-by-steps struggle is a milestone achievement. And uh, we can see that every year, we were able to increase the number of scholarships on different institutions because there were more number of interests. In saying that, uh, unfortunately, what we saw that this visa category directly impacted our young generation too. So they stopped studying from year 10 and they were not able to pursue with their dreams because there was this misconceptions uh, and then also limited number of scholarship for them to apply for the university. So they would get married quickly and they could uh, go to the different pathway plans. When we are talking about those resilience, those members, they could have been potential doctors, nurses, or other engineers that could have been in the field working as a profession. But right now, they're 10 steps behind because of that visa category. I can say that because we have been through that steps as a lived-in experience member uh, who have been at CHEV visa and working directly with the similar students have been through that steps. But again, um, seeing that community came together and worked together to support individual through that aspect was a highlight of this process too. We could see that students directly were talking about this and then also they were trying to advocate for chef and TPV visas. In 2014, the students were not openly uh, uh, introduced themselves that, yes, I'm an asylum in different area of the community because that was a bad thing to do, um, that, that, that there was a shame associated with the asylum seekers. But right now we could see a shift. We could see that they are proud that they have been through that process because the, the value of the lived experiences. It comes in two ways because some people might not have the same experience and they might still 
not be associating with that terminology itself too, but we could see a bit of shift on the uh, being associated as an asylum seeker as an identity aspect too. If you look at that ways, those are the implications barriers that we faced uh, majorly in our community, unfortunately. I hope that I answer those questions. Yeah, you did. That was, that was excellent, Asma. Thank you so much for all those insights. Yeah, really important to keep in mind those, those broader um, or like social impacts of these policies as well, like you say, affecting people's the way they're identifying, the way they can move forward with their lives and pursue other opportunities. So, yeah, really great to hear from you on that. Yeah, thank you so much for those really interesting insights to all the questions. We also have another little question, but this is for all of the panellists. So what is your advice to law students or graduates looking to practice in or make a difference in refugee and immigration law or support services? What do you wish you had known at our age? Well, I can say come and volunteer at the ASRC. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just saying um, prior to this kicking off officially that we're so lucky to have so many exceptional um, volunteers at the ASRC who are law students. And I would like to think it's a good way of increasing um, your knowledge and experience in the area. Uh, And I guess from a practical point of view as well, because I know um, my experience, at least through law school, was you learn a lot um, about the theoretical academic framework and practising in the area, having done so now myself for a number of years, it can be quite a, a different experience. So I think volunteer work can be really valuable in increasing your um practical skills and actually getting a sense of what it's actually like to work in the area because, you know, it can be confronting and it can have its challenges. So I think it's good to um, to get a sense of how you respond in those sorts of situations. Yeah, so <laughs> I highly recommend that. We're always looking for new exceptional volunteers. So keep it in mind. That's a great one. And from what I've heard, it's like such a rewarding experience. It's so interesting. So Yeah, you'll meet so one. many amazing people. Yeah. Amazing. Maria or Asma? Asma, did you? Yes, I would like to add, Esther, I cannot um, emphasize enough the impact of ASRC to the journey of SHIP and TPV visits. Um, it supports us through that process. Uh, and then also including um, informations when it comes to the scholarship applications too. So just wanted to highlight the importance of the ASRC in that aspect too. Uh, but um, as a law student, uh, what I can highly emphasize that you have got an important and critical role in educating and then promoting uh, understanding and empathy toward the refugees. We do not want sympathy at all. It's empathy toward individuals and recognizing the lived in experience that we have lost during that period too. As we discussed today is that those majorities on those TPV and SHIP visas have lived their country for a reason and that's a valid reason because of the war, persecutions and terror that have been true. Um, Just recognizing their lived in experience And acknowledging that is very important. And um, seeing that shifted recently, um, it's it's just that it gives us hope. Just in terms of careers, um, I guess I would also probably say think broadly about um, think places like the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, that's being abolished at the moment, but I think it's going to be revamped and enlarged because there's such a backlog of refugee cases. So I was, my first job, and this is how I got into refugee law 20 years ago, is I was a legal advisor to the Refugee Review Tribunal, now part of the AAT. You can also be an associate to the federal court, um, a federal court judge, and they do a lot of migration cases. Um, And probably something controversial, I'm not against, well, you know, I'm not against, but um, it's okay also to work for the Home Office or the Department of Immigration. A lot of my refugee law students sort of say, you know, is that okay? In my opinion, Esther might have, you know, something to say 
about this too. I think it's good to have good people in the Department of Immigration and Home Affairs. So I think broadly, yeah, think broadly about your career options. Obviously, volunteering is fantastic, um, but in, for paid positions um, and also think about overseas. I did a Master's of Human Rights at University of Essex and you can then um, volunteer and work overseas as well. A great suggestion. Yeah, it's really yeah interesting about thinking broadly because you never know like all the ways you can help or like different directions you can um, tackle it by. Ben and Yash, have you received any questions? This one's from um, Jonah. So Maria, my question was directed towards you. Um, mentioned at the start about community advocacy and getting in contact with politicians. Given the current government's kind of like refugee-friendly public-facing position, how do you approach discussing or raising this with, with MPs, especially MPs who may be involved in the current government, um, yeah, when, when their policies may, in fact, not be that refugee-friendly? Um, yeah, so obviously, yeah, if your local member is Nick, Nick Kim, you know, someone from the Greens, then, you know, it's it's going to be easier if your local, and it doesn't have to be a local member, by the way, but that's probably an old-fashioned way of doing things. But typically speaking, if you are in a particular electorate, um, you can write to your local member and they're supposed to respond. But if you're sending a, um, a conservative, like a Liberal Party senator or parliamentarian, um, some sort of letter, I would use things like the rule of law. Um, so things that they understand, use language like economic contribution, um, that refugees make an economic contribution. When I fronted parliamentary committees or talked to politicians, yeah, things like the rule of law really resonates, particularly if they're um, former solicitors. Um, even Ian McDonald, who was of the National Party and he was infamous for not listening to people, he, yeah, he would listen when you talked about rule of law. The cost, people have talked about the cost, so that's another thing that resonates with um, politicians. So you sort of try to use the language that they will understand. Yeah, thank you. I, I think my question was more in terms of Labor MPs. In fact, I've, my local member narrowly beat a Greens MP who's closely connected with the refugee story and he's on the Committee of uh, the committee of Human Rights in, in Parliament. I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but, yeah, it's, it was more about the, the Labor stance given yeah, it's often it's closely related to, to the Liberal Party when not many people really realise that. Okay, yeah, I understand. Yeah, so there's a few sort of wedge issues and one of them is the, the boat turnbacks. So, look... It, yeah, it's difficult with the boat turnbacks because it's, un, well, I think it's unlikely that they'll move publicly on that. So just for those who are unaware, there's bipartisan support for some key pillars of the refugee policy and the, that one of the most important things is turnbacks. The only thing I would probably say about Nauru and Papua New Guinea is that people aren't being um, taken to Nauru and Papua New Guinea anymore. They are turned back to Indonesia. What you might be able to say then to a Labor Party politician is, look, the cost is blowing out. We've got um, some pretty heavy duty pressures on our budget in terms of the NDIS, um, quite rightly, um, and other factors. So it means that, you know, we're wasting all this money on offshore processing and we've got a lot of need in the community for housing, the NDIS and other unemployment supports. And we should be, as a budgetary issue, moving that money across. So not really talking about refugee, the refugee convention as such, but some um, things that might resonate politically. Thank you so much for your question, Joanna. That was really good. Thanks, Joanna. Asma, do you have anything to add to that before we wrap up for the night? Not at this stage, but Joanna, I just wanted to highlight another aspect that we uh, are, especially people from Iran directly in our community, uh, and specifically those on TPV and share visas who are not um, eligible to apply for permanent residency given that they have been in Australia for almost 10 years and they were settling in during that period, understanding what is their next chapter and uh, what we can do at this stage could be a direction to talk about labours 
um, given that they are uh, refugee friendly at this stage too. Or especially Iran during this period of revolution that's happening directly targeted to women, um, which is not safe to return. Uh, these are the points that we really want to highlight because it reflects on the relations that we have with other countries. But at the same time, what is our obligations for those who are in Australia for uh, almost two decades now? And then uh, is there a chance for them to return? And is it safe for them to return at this stage too? These are the big questions that we do need to ask too. Thank you so much for that, Asma. Yeah, I think another thing I'd add there is, as you say, Asma, like talking about the ongoing political um, world events and the current affairs and stuff, which really bring it into sharp focus what the government's doing wrong. And I think highlighting hypocrisy can be a really powerful tool, um, whether it's highlighting hypocrisy in terms of the approach that um, Ukrainian refugees might be receiving sort of socially or in terms of the amount of visas that they're receiving compared to other people or um, hypocrisy in the time that people arrive. So like we had the yeah, TPV and Chev visa holders now granted permanency. Um, so it's about 19,000 people in the Australian community. But then you've got 12,000 people on bridging visas um, who went through the same fast track system um, and were refused protection says even though they're right sort of at the same time under the same conditions um so a lot of these yeah um situations that you can draw parallels to i think really shows the gaps and the and the holes in um, the government's policy and their arguments that's where you can use that rule of law principle and i say that because the previous liberal government particularly christian porter the former attorney general was talking a lot about the rule of law so that's where you okay okay you want to talk about the rule of law we want to talk about the rule of law too and mm. sort of use their language or if they talk about gender as well um the past few years we've tried to uh use the the gender angle angle to try and get um some traction as well yeah I think above all, as as was really um, highlighted as well, just keeping in mind that it's most important to humanise the issue after the past over so many years of dehumanisation in the policy. So, yeah, really putting those voices of people with lived experience first, um, I think is really important. So it's been great to see a lot of um, protest actions from people with lived experience standing up and speaking out recently. So... Great. Thank you so much for all of our speakers um, for your wonderful contributions. We are at time, so we will end it there. Um, yeah, thanks for a really engaging discussion. Um, thanks for the questions that were pre-submitted um, before that we weaved in. And Joni, your question live as well was really great. Um, we'll be sending out a um, recording of the event after it's been processed and uploaded to our Spotify podcast. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, share it around if you enjoyed the discussion and sort of want yeah to build on this awareness raising and education that we're talking about is really important, especially as law students. And we'll also send out some further resources, um, further reading and any sort of actionable um, events that uh, attendees can follow up with to put what we've learned tonight um, into practice. And on that note, we do have a fundraising link which we've set up to the ASRC. But yeah, thank you so much to everyone um, and enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been great. Yeah, thanks. It's great to meet you. Thank you, everyone.